Hello, and welcome back to the UFO and Aliens podcast. I'm your host, Rick Black. I would like to give a special shout out to Victoria for her generous $3 subscription. Thank you very much. I don't know if you know, but the government is launching a website for UFOs, or they already have. It's a place you can go to read about declassified UFO cases and also to report UFOs or UAPs. Currently, only government employees, contractors, and service members can report them. They call it a one-stop shopping site for all things UAP. In a few months, they will create a separate reporting mechanism where anyone will be able to report a UAP. It's run by the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, or AERO. No classified or sensitive information will be available there. I don't know. It might be a good place to do some research. Maybe use it as one of many sources. But I'm not going to put too much thought into it. It's the government, after all. They are only going to tell you what they want you to know. Today, I'm going to be telling you about Gulf Breeze, Florida. Gulf Breeze is a little town between Pensacola and Pensacola Beach. It's in Pensacola Bay. There is a huge naval air station right there in Pensacola, and Eglin Air Force Base is just a stone's throw away. The case in Gulf Breeze all started on November 11, 1987, when a man named Ed Walters claimed that he saw a light moving behind some pine trees outside his house. He goes outside and he sees a UFO. So he runs back in the house and grabs a Polaroid camera, and he goes back and takes some pictures of it. He took five quick pictures of it. Then he said the UFO moved until it was directly above him, covered him in a blue beam of light that paralyzed him temporarily, and then started to speak to him telepathically, telling him to calm down. Then the beam started to lift him, and the voice in his head changed from male to female, and then he started seeing, in his head, images of dogs. Then the blue beam stopped and dropped him to the ground. So here's this guy. He's just had this really weird encounter, and there are no witnesses. But he does have these five pictures that he just took with his Polaroid camera. He considers them taking into the newspaper, but after talking it over with his wife, he decides not to. Then a few days later, he decides to go ahead and send the pictures to the paper, the Gulf Breeze Sentinel. He sends them anonymously by using the alias Mr. X. The Sentinel runs the story two days later on November 19, 1987, complete with the Polaroid pictures that Ed took. The pictures show a disc-shaped craft with a small light on top, windows around the middle, and a large lighted circle underneath. It looks like the bottom part is another section of the craft. Under the pictures, it reads, These Polaroid photos were taken from the front yard of a Gulf Breeze residence Wednesday evening, November 11th. If anybody saw it or knows any information regarding this, please contact the Sentinel. The day after the story ran, Ed starts hearing a hum in his ear. He starts hearing that alien voice in his head again, only this time it has an African accent. He goes outside at this point and he sees the UFO again. He yells at it to leave him alone. It talks back to him, telling him to calm down and step forward. Another voice speaks to him in Spanish. Ed takes more pictures. Ed hears a conversation in his head on board the craft. A female voice says, You can't expose them. They won't hurt you. It's just some tests. 
That's all. Ed yells at the craft, What gives you the right to suck people up into your ship? Then, in his head, Ed begins to see naked women. Not drawings of naked women, but actual naked women. All kinds of women. Fat women, little women, black women, white women, every race and every age. There were even pregnant women. Then a voice tells Ed, We will come for you. On November 25, 1987, five witnesses come forward and say they saw something in the sky. These five people have no connection with one another and report seeing the same object, but at different times. One witness claims they saw the UFO one hour after Ed's levitating experience. Charlie Summerby and his wife Doris saw the UFO on November 11th. Charles said it was just after the sun set over East Bay, they saw this circular object. It was bluish-gray in color, and there was light shining through all the portholes. And the really amazing part was there was no sound. Another witness said they saw it at about 8 a.m. and noticed there were two military jets following it. The UFO tilted at a 45-degree angle and waited for the jets to get close, and then, in an instant, it just shot straight up. On December 2, 1987, Ed writes about hearing a conversation in his head in Spanish about a baby. A male and a female talk about why they were only given bananas and they need to keep their voice down or else they'll hear you. Ed said he, that he walks outside and sees a UFO in the distance before it moves to right in front of him at the speed that seems impossible. The UFO tells Ed to step forward. Ed refuses. He has his Polaroid in one hand and his gun in the other. The UFO retreats and Ed takes one more picture. Ed's wife walks out just in time to see the UFO take off straight up. That same night at about 3.30 in the morning, Ed reaches for the drawstring to raise his blinds and on the other side of the window there is a small, four-foot-tall creature. Ed rushes to go outside to confront the creature when he's struck by that blue beam again. The beam eventually lets him go. Ed sees the UFO moving away, shoots another blue beam down, and then leaves. Ed believes the second blue beam was it picking up the little creature. Ed described the little creature as having a square shape. It was wearing a gray uniform and helmet. The eyes behind the opening in the helmet were large, black, almond-shaped, and slanted. And the creature was holding a silver rod. The next day, December 3, 1987... The Sentinel gets a picture that was allegedly taken in 1986, and it shows the same craft that Ed took pictures of, only the lights were red instead of blue. The person sending the pictures claimed they didn't initially send them in because they didn't want to be thought of as a crackpot. After they saw Ed's photos, they decided it would be okay to send them in. Also, several other witnesses began to come forward. The next day, December 4th, 1987... MUFON gets involved and begins their investigation. The next day, a different craft appears behind a tree and begins to talk to Ed. It says, Do not resist. Stay where you are. You are in grave danger, and we will not harm you. Zihas, we have come for you. Ed does resist. He takes a picture, and the UFO leaves. On December 10th, more witnesses come forward to the Sentinel. December 17th, Ed is in bed with his wife. He wakes up in the middle of the night to see three dark figures standing in the middle of his room. He gets up to fight off these dark figures and instantly feels a sharp pain in his head. The creatures leave. 
Ed looks out his window and sees the UFO. He runs outside, but not before he grabs his gun and his camera. He gets yet another picture of this thing. The UFO begins to move away, and it appears to Ed to have some kind of mechanical issue. He takes more pictures. This has to be the most photographed UFO in the history of UFOs. Two days before Christmas, Ed goes outside to check on his pool filter and sees three UFOs hovering above him. The Sentinel receives more pictures by an unknown source calling himself Believer Bill. They were pictures of the same craft. The next issue of the Sentinel showed the Believer Bill pictures right next to Ed's. They look exactly the same, like maybe they are Ed's. December 28th, Ed takes a video of this UFO flying behind the tree line behind his house. On January 12th, 1988, the most famous photo associated with this case, Ed is working on a construction site, double-checking the AC for the following workday, when a UFO comes down to street level. Ed is struck by a white light while he's in his truck. This light paralyzes him, and he said he had this intense pins and needles feeling in his arms. Ed made an attempt to grab the shotgun that was in the back seat, but since he couldn't feel his arms, he wasn't able to get it. He was able to get the camera that was in the seat next to him, and he was able to snap a photo close up with the UFO very close to the ground. Ed gets out of the truck, the camera is in one hand, and he's able to get the shotgun, and he's dragging it behind him. The UFO speaks to Ed, telling him to come forward. It shot down five blue beams. In each blue beam, there was a little creature. Each one had a silver rod in his hand. So, Ed gets back in his truck and leaves. Over the course of the next few months, Ed has more sightings. Two men from MUFON agreed to stay outside Ed's house to see if they could witness the UFO or UFOs. They would each take two 12-hour shifts, and they would take turns staking out Ed's house. They did this for nine days. They gave Ed a walkie-talkie in case he started hearing voices in his head or seeing anything in the house, and he was to radio them and fill them in. On January 21st, Ed begins to hear a hum in his head, so he radios the MUFON guy in his car. The MUFON guy didn't see anything. He reports that the only thing he saw was an airplane. On January 24th, Ed takes Dwayne Cook, the publisher of the Gulf Breeze Sentinel, with him to try to track down one of these UFOs. While driving down Highway 98, Ed reports an intense pain in his head. It felt like his eyeball was going to pop out of its socket. Ed pulls over to Soundside Drive, which was where the infamous rogue UFO shot was taken, in an effort to lure the UFO out. He wrote that Dwayne Cook actually filmed this experience on camera. But Ed just gets out of the car, and he's in the middle of the road screaming, Why won't you just leave me alone? Show yourself. As Ed was screaming, he looked over behind Dwayne and saw the UFO, so he snapped a photo. As Dwayne turned around, the UFO winked out, so Dwayne didn't see it. But he did see Ed take the picture. He saw him take the picture out of the camera, and Dwayne peeled it. Ed continued to have encounters with the UFO and take more pictures of the UFO. The UFO continued to refer to him as Zihas and telling him, we're here for you, and in sleep you will know. Around this time, Ed starts to look into regressive hypnosis to see if he has any hidden memories. During these sessions, he finds three episodes of Missing Time. 
As he goes through the sessions, these periods of missing time slowly come into picture. At age 17, Ed sees an alien face above him while he's sleeping. He wakes his brother Bert, who's in the next room. Bert tries to rationalize with him, telling him it was probably just his cat. They found footprints that led outside and into Bert's and then Ed's rooms. Several small tracks showing several comings and goings, most of them to Ed's room. Bert noticed that Ed was wet, even though he hadn't been outside. At age 25, Ed is driving and he sees a light shoot past him. The light begins to circle him and Ed pulls off to the side of the road. From Ed's perspective, this happened very quickly, but there were several hours missing. At age 33, Ed is canoeing when he hits a large metallic object that slowly begins to glow green. Bubbles start rising to the surface, and the current starts to draw his canoe toward the object. The next thing he knows, he's lying in his canoe several miles away and missing hours. Ed believes that the first night he witnessed the UFO on November 11th, he was taken in that blue beam into the spacecraft and his memory wiped. On May 1st, Ed goes down to the Soundside Beach to confront the UFO. At one point, he hears it and takes a picture of the UFO with his SRS camera rig. He reports that his fingers were smelling bad and had this black substance under his fingernails. He saves this substance. His face is bruised and he is missing about an hour and a half. On February 7th, 1988, Ed's wife is chased by a UFO and it shoots down a blue beam, barely missing her. Ed took a picture of that. It shows his wife Frances cowering through a door and a blue beam right next to her. MUFON gives Ed a brand new camera on February 10th. This camera would be internally locked, so if anyone tried to go inside the camera and mess with it to try to create a hoax picture, they would know. Ed said he faced a dilemma. He'd been praying that the UFO would get out of his life. Now he was hoping that it would come back for one more photograph. Around this time, physicist Dr. Bruce Maccabee comes in to examine the photos. Dr. Bruce concludes that the pictures are genuine. Did I mention that Dr. Bruce is a ufologist? He had to be pretty smart to get a PhD in physics, so I'd wager that Dr. Bruce is smarter than me. But, and it's a big but, if you're looking for proof of a UFO with a certain attitude, you'll find it. If you're a hammer, everything's a nail. Also, Robert Nathan of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory stated that many of these images are double exposure photographs and that the focus on the object and the buildings nearby seem to be more sharply focused or fuzzier. Nathan also said that he had a feeling that there was some kind of cut and paste on the surface. Ed Gray, the mayor of Gulf Breeze, extensively analyzed the photos himself and concluded they were fake. Ed also agrees to take a polygraph. He takes a total of four polygraphs, and he passes. The examiner states, with the information that is available to this examiner at this time, it is felt that Mr. Walters truly believes that the photographs and personal sightings he has described are true and factual to the best of his ability. I'll put my two cents in here. You can beat a polygraph. A polygraph shows when you're lying and when you aren't. There is a reason it isn't admissible in court. 
It measures stresses on the body that could be explained by many different reasons. For instance, if the examiner asked you if you have ever taken any illegal drugs and you just had a friend die of an overdose, the machine would probably pick up on the stresses in your body and the examiner would interpret that as a lie. Too many variables there to put any weight on a polygraph. On February 26th, Ed uses the MUFON camera to take pictures of lights in the sky. The photos were used during a press conference in front of the public. They were hard to see and didn't reveal much. But it was implied that it was a large object off in the distance, possibly a mothership. Ed goes out and purchases another Polaroid camera with the intention of having a camera that was more difficult to double expose the easier it was to prove the photos were legitimate. Why, why, Ed? Why are you going out and getting a camera when MUFON actually gave you a camera for that purpose? And the picture you took... Oh, wait, anyway, we'll get back to that later. Shortly after buying the camera, he is visited by the UFO again and takes his picture. March 20th. Ed hears the ringing in his ears. He is spoken to in his head. They call him Zihas and say... In sleep, you will know. Ed goes outside and sees a UFO. He takes a new camera rig with him. This rig has two cameras on it. They will take the pictures at the exact same time and be able to triangulate to tell the distance from the object. Ed is doing all of this because the skeptics and debunkers are fully invested in shutting him down. Ed thinks they are upset because they can't debunk his pictures. Just because they can't figure out how he's making the pictures doesn't prove that they weren't hoaxed. But I find it suspicious that the best pictures he took were with his own camera, and the MUFON camera, with the anti-tamper one on it, was the worst picture. Ed and his family eventually move out of that house and into another one. The house is sold, and through the process of doing some work on the house, the new owner finds, under the insulation in the attic, a styrofoam model of a UFO. He knows the history of the house, and his first thought is that the previous owner, Ed, the UFO witness, made the model to show his friends what it looked like. Well, that doesn't make any sense at all. How many pictures did Ed take? Why would he need to make a model to show people what it looked like? He could just show them the picture, right? Here, look at this. Maybe the new owner didn't know about the photos. Although he probably did. If you know anything about the case at all, you knew there were like 35 pictures taken. The model was 9 inches across, 5 inches deep, and included a blue plastic film and a 6-inch orange paper ring, a 3.5-inch long plastic tube, and a 2-inch wide paper ring between the 9-inch styrofoam plates. With electrical tape on the bottom of the model, on drafting paper, there were carefully drawn and punched out windows, which encircled two-thirds of the model. On the reverse side of the drafting paper were handwritten dimensions for a house on Jamestown Drive, written in what appears to be Ed Walters' handwriting. And according to Santa Rosa County building permits, Walters has built at least two homes on Jamestown Drive. Shortly after finding this model, there's a knock on the door. And there's a reporter for the Gulf Breeze Sentinel standing there, and he asks if he's seen any UFOs. No. Have you seen any pictures of UFOs? No. Have you found any models of UFOs? What the heck? 
It was Craig Myers from the Pensacola News Journal. If this part of the story is true, what did Myers know about the model, and how did he find out about it? Did he plant the model in the house? Craig Myers was investigating the Walters' claim about a UFO. He criticized the Sentinel's coverage of the story as uncritical and sensational. After visiting the new owner of the Walters' house, he runs a story about the UFO model. He claims that using the model, he was able to duplicate Ed's photos almost perfectly. Walters refused to take a polygraph test, but signed a sworn statement denying any knowledge of the model UFO. The homeowner who found the model also signed a sworn statement stating that he did not know who made it. Walters said that he thought maybe someone broke into his house while it was on the market and planted the model there. But the police say there are no reports of any break-ins. He also said something to the fact of, if I made the model, I wouldn't be dumb enough to leave it behind when I moved. That's a good point. I don't agree with it. Do you? If he hid it under the insulation in his attic... It would be real easy to forget about it when he moved, out of sight, out of mind. Walters and his wife actually wrote a book about their UFO experiences. A friend of the Walters family, Tommy Smith, came forward and claimed to have witnessed Ed faking the UFO pictures as a practical joke. Curtis also reported that Walter and his wife had divorced in November of 1992, splitting the $2.5 million in assets that Curtis believed came from the hoax. They aren't the only ones profiting from this case. Craig Myers wrote a book about it after he ran that story about the model. The name of the book is The War of the Words, The True But Strange Story of the Gulf Breeze UFO. Willie Smith from the UFO Information Gathering Group, Unicat, reported spotting a support under the UFO in the photos, indicating that the object is a model and that, that was painted. Maccabee claimed that the other eyewitnesses Sightings were more important than the photographs. The Center for UFO Studies, CUFOS, a group founded by astronomer and ufologist J. Allen Hynek, stated that Walter's photos were fake based on the fact that the windows on the craft were not spaced evenly, and because of the waviness in the photos suggesting they were taken near or reflected off water. Mark Rodiger and Robert Boyd, also of CUFOS, were informed by friends of Walter's that he was a practical joker and prankster who had told people he was going to pull off the ultimate prank. These acquaintances also noted several curious parallels between Walter's story and the Whitley Stryber's book, Communion, which had been published a few months before the first sighting. I wish there was some governing board, like a court, where these cases could go and be argued on both sides. I would love to sit in the gallery and watch witnesses get interviewed by both ufologists and debunkers. It would be great entertainment. What do you think? Have you made up your mind on this one? I have. There's enough evidence to support that this case is totally made up. It's muddying up the waters for real cases. You don't have to believe me. You can make up your own mind. Believe none of what you hear and half of what you read. If you like the show, I'd like to encourage you to help support the show. You can help me out with just $3 a month. Just go to the website and click on support. I would really appreciate the help and would be happy to give you a shout out. Do you have a UFO story you'd like to share? Is there a UFO story that you'd like for me to look into? Just send me an email at ufoandalienspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Rick Black and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>